Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Adam Murphy. And me, Chris Barrow. And coming up today, should we be worried about the new COVID variants that we've been hearing about? We also find out about a potential origin for migraines and why you might not want to drink George's Marvellous Medicine from Roald Dahl's story in real life. Also, grab your controllers because we are diving into the world of video games, how the music can get into your head, the psychology of games, and how they might have helped during lockdown. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock dropped what sounded like a virological bombshell onto Parliament. Over the last few days... Thanks to our world-class genomic capability in the UK, we have identified a new variant of coronavirus which may be associated with the fastest spread in the southeast of England. Initial analysis suggests that this variant is growing faster than the existing variants. We've currently identified over 1,000 cases with this variant, predominantly in the south of England, although cases have been identified in nearly 60 different local authority areas and numbers are increasing rapidly. Similar variants have been identified in other countries over the last few months. We've notified the World Health Organization about this new variant and Public Health England is working hard to continue its expert analysis at Portland Down. Mr Speaker, I must stress at this point that there is currently nothing to suggest that this variant is more likely to cause serious disease and the latest clinical advice is that it's highly unlikely that this mutation would fail to respond to a vaccine. But it shows we've got to be vigilant and follow the rules and everyone needs to take personal responsibility not to spread this virus. That announcement completely broadsided the media. There'd been no prior warning this was coming and no background briefings, so speculation was predictably rife and the story stole the front pages of Tuesday's dailies with alarming headlines about mutant coronaviruses. But was this in fact just a smokescreen to distract attention from the fact that over 10 million people were simultaneously plunged into a more restrictive tier than they'd been before? Or does this new viral variant really pose a significant threat? And also, how was it picked up in the first place? Dr Chris Smith spoke to Zanya Stamataki, an immunologist based in Birmingham. Viruses mutate. They change um, as they grow, and it's quite normal for them to turn into different variants of their previous entities um, as time passes. So this virus came into humans back in December last year. It had a year to change around the world, um, and it's now quite natural that we are going to see different forms of this virus in different parts of the world. This one that's been picked up and has made headlines being in parts of London, the southeast of England. 
What's its significance to the coronavirus outbreak in general? So Public Health England is monitoring viruses because we need to understand how they are changing so that we can monitor our immunity to these viruses as well. This particular variant has been watched because it has quite a few changes from the original described virus. So not just one mutation, but several mutations combined. How was it picked up in the first place? We keep surveillance on these viruses. We are taking isolates from patients from different parts of the country uh, and different parts of the world. And we're very used to this because we used to do it for influenza. And when a virus is starting to look like its proteins that it has on their surface, like you've heard of the spike protein that coats this virus particle, if it starts to get a little bit different, then we're keeping a look for that to see if our vaccine preparations are going to still be effective against it and if our immune responses are going to keep up with the virus. And to what extent do you think this is contributing to a bigger outbreak in the southeast of England? Because one of the other things that the health secretary said was this might be linked to the fact that we're seeing surging case numbers in some places and where we see those surging case numbers, we see more of these variants. But he did say we don't know if it's cause or effect. Exactly. So we don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. We know that this variant is prevalent in the south of the country, but we don't know if it is in the south of the country because it is prevalent. It is more likely that the virus emerged in the south of the country and then the spread was more abundant in that area. That meant that more people are having it. So it's more likely linked to our own practices. We um, have very highly populated cities in the south of the country. People are taking a lot of public transport. It's more difficult for them to protect themselves um, than in less densely populated regions. So if a virus emerges, uh, that is a variant in that region, it's going to spread and what will be the nature of the experiments that institutions like Port and Down will do to test whether or not this change to the virus is giving it the ability to sidestep our immune response? Well, first of all, they are going to look at isolating this virus and they're going to try to get it to infect in the laboratory. And in fact, with coronaviruses, this is very easy. Um, they are a delight to grow in the lab, as I can say from my own personal experience. So they're going to grow it in the lab and then they're going to expose it to uh, antibodies from the blood of patients that have recovered from the virus from different parts of the country. So if somebody that has recovered from the virus in the West Midlands uh, has got antibodies that recognize this virus, then the virus hasn't changed sufficiently. If the virus is not being recognized, then the virus has changed enough to escape our antibody response. And presumably similar sorts of experiments will be done using antibodies made from vaccinated individuals, either humans or animals, to test the possibility that these changes might enable the virus to put itself beyond the reach of the protection conferred by the vaccine. We hope it won't be, but I suppose there's a theoretical possibility it could. Exactly. And these experiments are not difficult to do. So we are having virologists chase the virus to look at surveillance of how the virus is changing. And we have immunologists chase the human immune response to see how our antibodies are evolving to keep up with the virus. So it's a game of cat and mouse, really. But overall, you're more kind of reassured than alarmed, reassured by the fact that surveillance has picked this up, but not alarmed because this is kind of par for the course with these sorts of viruses. It is totally part of the course. I am not alarmed. The virus is expected to change. In fact, this is a known feature of coronaviruses. And in fact, I would like people to be reassured as well that the technologies that we have to make vaccines now are so advanced 
that it is really easy for us to tweak the vaccine preparation to keep up with new viral variants as they emerge in the years to come. And we'll keep you posted on any developments there. That's Zanya Stamataki. Let's go to headaches now, and mice that get migraines have helped scientists in the US to uncover what might be going on in more than 10% of us who suffer from the condition. What Casey Brennan at the University of Utah has done is to make a genetic change in his mice so that they mimic the makeup of one group of humans who suffer regular migraines. What Casey Brennan and the University of Utah has done is to make a genetic change in his mice so they mimic the makeup of one group of humans who suffer regular migraines. And by watching the brains of these animals, they've found that periodically surges appear of an excitory nerve signal called glutamate. This, they speculate, causes overstimulation of the nearby nerve cells and starts the neurological equivalent of a Mexican wave that ripples across the brain. As it does so, it activates pain pathways that cause the ensuing headache. As Casey Brennan explained to Chris Smith, these new insights should enable the Utah team to unpick how this happens and better ways to control it. We, on the most fundamental level, are trying to understand how migraine works. The approach we took was to use mice carrying a gene that comes from a family of people who have hereditary migraine. This is a rare form of migraine, but it allows us to place the gene in the mouse and actually ask very detailed questions that we wouldn't be able to ask with humans directly. But critically, you can't ask a mouse if it's got a headache. So how do you know when the mouse is experiencing migraine phenomena? It's a very good question. For migraine with aura, this is migraine that many people will be familiar with, where you have a, a, a change in your vision, flashing lights, or sometimes people get numbness or tingling that moves, or some people lose the ability to speak. For migraine with aura, we know that there's an event in the brain called a spreading depolarization that underlies the migraine aura. We can look at this spreading depolarization in the mice, and if they have the spreading depolarization, there's other work that shows that we can assume that they have the beginnings of a migraine. So it gives us a real purchase on the subject. So when a person is having a migraine, there is some kind of abnormal electrical activity in at least one part of the brain to start with. And you're saying you then get this this spreading wave of of changed behaviour that goes across the brain, might take in some other areas, including visual areas, which is why people see these these flashing lights and so on, or, or, or experience abnormal sensations for a while. How does that then link to the headache that comes later? People have found that the spreading depolarization, the spreading wave of excitation that moves across the brain will cause pain-sensing nerves to fire. And those pain-sensing nerves are what generate the sensation of the headache. So that argues then, if we can get underneath what causes the initial wave of depolarization, because that's upstream of the headache, we ought to be able to knock the migraine on the head. Exactly. So what did you actually do with these mice that then gives us insights into that mechanism and what might be causing it and what might be causing it to spread in this way in the first place? So the mice have a little tiny window carved into their skull that allows us to look at their brain cells as they are going about their business. And this was where the surprise came. We saw these what we call plumes, basically puffs or clouds of something called glutamate. So glutamate is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. It is used for brain cells, neurons to communicate. It's absolutely essential. 
but it's kept within very, very tight bounds under normal circumstances. It's a substance that's absolutely essential for me to be talking to you right now and for you to be hearing me, but it looks like it was not kept in tight bounds in these animals. Putting this together then, would you say that a way of thinking about this is that for some reason in individuals who are prone to migraines, that the, the normal rigid tight control of their glutamate occasionally gets a bit out of control in one bit of the brain and they, they get this geezer goes off and the big plume of glutamate showers a patch of brain and the nerves there become more active than they should and that then triggers the ones next door and you get this sort of domino effect radiating out from where this started spreading out that burst of activity across the brain surface and that's a migraine kicking off you'll see the aura then it's followed later by the pain and because the brain is a bit more susceptible to not keeping control of its glutamate level that's why it's easier for that wave of of glutamate to spread across the brain in that way in those people that's a, a, a lovely summation. And I would say that we, I would have to, in being a responsible scientist, I'd have to say that's a lovely hypothesis at this point, but we can actually be as precise as you were in formulating that hypothesis about how migraines start. And that's, I think, one of the exciting advances of, of this work. The problem is that glutamate is an incredibly universal transmitter nerve transmitter isn't it it's an excitatory transmitter throughout the brain so it's going to be quite tricky to turn it off without causing enormous numbers of side effects so what do you propose to do now you understand this a bit better for people who are prone to migraines it's it's a very important question so on the one hand this does validate certain treatments that we use we have migraine preventive drugs for example that suppress glutamate-related excitation. So this validates those presently used treatments. But like you said, drugs that willy-nilly take glutamate levels down have profound side effects. The, the best example of that is ketamine or special K. What we would really like to do in future is dive deeper into the very basic mechanisms of these plume events so that we can develop more precision, fine-tuned drugs that could prevent the onset of plumes, but preserve normal activity in the brain. And let's hope they succeed. As someone who suffers from migraines, I really hope that comes out. Casey Brennan there, and that discovery has just come out in the journal Neuron. The USA's National Institutes of Health has got thousands of patients with diseases they can't explain. For investigator Dan Kastner, it was time for a new approach. I'm going to do things backwards. But what he didn't expect was the unlikely coincidence that would connect the dots. It is fact stranger than fiction. Find the story on November's episode of Naked Genetics, wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, how to make horror games spookier. But first, possibly the most important traveller in the next few weeks is Santa Claus. He might be the only traveller, given what's happening. And to make sure he gets to all those houses on time, he needs a really good GPS Imagine if the GPS told him he was at a nice child's house, but actually, he was at their naughty neighbour. That wouldn't be very good. Well, a Cambridge-based company, Focal Point Positioning, has teamed up with a European company called Ublox to help fix a key weakness in the technology called multipath interference. With us to explain it is Focal Point Positioning CEO, Ramsey Farragher. So, Ramsey, what exactly is multipath interference? It's the effect that's caused by lots of echoes of a radio signal bouncing around inside a city 
confusing your GPS chip and making it calculate a wrong position. It's a bit like trying to host a very loud dinner party inside a big cave. It would quickly turn into a noisy, confusing cacophony due to all of those echoes. And GPS is designed for open spaces where there are no signal reflections. This problem of multipath interference, the problem of signal echoes from buildings, has actually been the biggest cause of bad GPS fixes for the last 20 years. Now, given all that being true, my phone's GPS is still pretty good. So why is fixing this and making better so important? So it's true that on a good day out in the open, that little smartphone in your pocket can work out where you are to within a few metres. And that is then both a blessing and a curse, because if you become very reliant on that good accuracy outdoors in the middle of nowhere, when you go and try and use that GPS in the middle of downtown New York or London city centre or Tokyo, surrounded by big, tall, reflective buildings, and only then do you discover that it's actually quite inaccurate in those places, it can cause you major problems. Your taxi turning up on the wrong side of the street, your food delivery going to the wrong house, in future problems for drone deliveries getting it all wrong, autonomous cars not being able to navigate safely in amongst the tallest, nastiest buildings. And that's what we fixed. And it opens up lots of new opportunities for meter-level positioning right down there amongst the skyscrapers. Well, then, I suppose the key question to ask you is, how does it work? What is your solution? We went right back to the very lowest level of the physics of the problem and created the fix right from there. So when these signals bounce around, that means they're coming at you from the wrong directions now, relative to the actual location of the satellites in the sky. And we do always know exactly where those satellites are, but the GPS chip itself has never been able to work that out. It can't calculate the angles that the different signals are coming from. The only way to do that normally has been with a very, very expensive antenna. I'm talking about thousands of pounds for an antenna. It'll never be on a smartphone. But what we figured out was a way to change the software inside the GPS chip itself so that it can now calculate all of these different angles of arrival of all of the different signals and unpick them from each other and separate out the one line of sight signal you want from all of the echoes you don't want. And we can make the chip ignore all of those echoes. And voila, no more multipath interference. So it's like when you've got a tangled mess of headphones in your pocket. The phone is now doing software to unpick that to get your headphones back to what they should be. Yeah, exactly. And is this something that can be easily implemented everywhere in every phone? Or are there some really key focused applications? So it, it is just a matter of upgrading the software inside the GPS chip. And that then means we can solve multipath for any device that uses radio signals to navigate, just like GPS. So any application for a moving GPS receiver, we can help. But my company itself cannot change the software on the GPS chip completely on our own. The change has to be made by the manufacturers. That software change only takes a few months to do in reality. Getting a billion-dollar GPS chipset company to hand over the keys to their pride and joy to my startup doesn't happen overnight and so we generally have to do quite a lot of trialing and verification with those companies to prove that our tech does what we say it can but we've made great progress with major gps chipset companies ublocks being the first deal that we can publicly announce and there'll be many more like it in the future and i can also announce here on the naked scientists for the very first time that focal point positioning has also been working very closely with santa for many many years now and we always help to ensure that he never has any navigational problems on his big night out
it, it's very important to know Santa will be safe. But in in the last minute that we've got, what's what's next then? What's the future of this kind of technology? Well, the exciting thing is that we can help bring one meter positioning to your smartphone in cities right now with the current generation of GPS chips. But next on our roadmap is trying to get that right down to 10 centimetres, maybe even down to two centimetres. That's the sort of thing we're aiming for in the future. And then that will open up a whole host of new ways that people can make use of GPS for all sorts of exciting new purposes. Brilliant. Ramsey Farger from Focal Point Positioning, thank you very much. I'm hoping that Santa-like navigation is coming very soon for all of us. But anyway, let's move on to Roald Dahl's famous book, George's Marvellous Medicine. This is a young boy called George who decides to make his grandma less cranky and horrible by replacing her usual medicine with his own invention. Now, his improvised concoction uses items from all over the house, from shampoo and toothpaste to floor polish, engine oil and antifreeze. Now, when his grand drinks it, she grows even taller than the house. And that's a result that real-world paediatric doctors Graham Johnson and Patrick Davies decided needed checking. And so, helped by their own children, they've analysed George's recipe, as Graham explains to Phil Sansom. He wasn't quite as scientific as we would have liked him to have been. He didn't write it down. And that means he comes a bit unstuck when grandma becomes really invigorated and grows enormous and his father is really excited by that because he thinks, oh, wow, we can make a lot of money out of this. And because he hasn't been systematic and noted everything down, medicines two, three and four have very, very different effects. Right. Obviously, we frown on that kind of process, not scientific. (laughs) So what's the right way to do it? What did you do? We employed five very junior researchers to... How junior? Well, the youngest was seven uh, (laughs) and and didn't have his school pen license at the time. They worked in three different groups and they went through the book, writing down every single ingredient. Then we compared those groups. So those three independent groups that they were in, we made sure that all their results were the same, which they were, and went to the National Poisons Information Service website called Talkspace and looked up all the different ingredients and what possible toxic effects that they would give. All sounds very rigorous, all sounds very above Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think so. What did you find? Uh, there, were, <laughs> there was quite... You're, you're making noises that make it sound not good. <laughs> <laughs> there was quite a lot to find. So um, basically, Grandma would not have been very well at all. Actually, some of Roald Dahl's descriptions were really accurate. So she talks about how her stomach's on fire. There are lots of ingredients that might cause indigestion or nausea and vomiting and gastric ulcers and things. Sheep dip in there and shoe polish. She starts to swell and there are a few ingredients in there that might cause some foaming in particular in there, things like the shampoo. Then there's she has this sudden sharp twist and jerk and flips herself out of the chair. There are several ingredients that would cause convulsions. But from there... She starts to grow and she becomes invigorated and she bursts through the roof of the house. That's not really what would have happened, unfortunately. There are several ingredients in there that would make her very sleepy. In addition to the convulsions, she might have um, stopped breathing, developed kidney failure. There were several ingredients that would cause vomiting. And then these erosions in her esophagus and and maybe through to her aorta and all sorts. You'd have been in in a right mess. It's not looking good for grandma. Not at all. What do you predict would have happened to her? it is highly unlikely that she would have survived such a toxicological insult. It's interesting because it's very different from the results reported in the book. It is. 
I'm just wondering, maybe are there some interactions maybe that you don't have in your database, something like that, that make a person become giant? Yeah, that's possible. I mean, we weren't able to reproduce the singing and the chanting. And obviously, we are just extrapolating from known results that we haven't recreated making this medicine. It's not really a way around that, is there? Not, not so much, no. <laughs> if I want to tinker with the recipe myself, what do I have to do? Do I have to go through the rigmarole of what you did and go through the database? Or do I have to make one or what? Well, we've tried to make this easier for you or the BMJ have. So if you go to the bmj.com and look for George's Marvelous Medicine and our paper is there, they have made a simulator so that you can mix all the different ingredients from around the house and see how poorly that they would make you. And there are some little Easter eggs in there as well that are not on the achievements board. So please go and have a look at that and have a play. If I unlock any of those Easter eggs, do I become an honorary marvellous medical doctor? Absolutely. I would, yes. I would be delighted if you uh, tweeted both me and Patrick Davis, if you managed to unlock one of the three Easter eggs. You'll know that you found one because I'll give you a little clue. A chicken appears, a certain chicken. So please tweet me if you manage to find out one of those. Goodness me, it's like George's Marvelous Medicine Simulator. Sounds like a video game. But yes, challenge accepted from Graham Johnson from the Royal Derby Hospital. And his toxicological analysis is in the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal. And finally in our news section, as Christmas is only a few days away now, I've been finding out about a Czech tradition that looks towards the year ahead. There are a lot of weird ways to tell the future. In ancient Rome, there were augurs, people who would look at the formation of birds to give them omens. There are oneromancers, people who look to dreams for clues, or omphalomancy, which claims to tell you how many children a woman will have by looking at her belly button. But a lot of these telling the future traditions appear at Christmas when you're looking forward to the new year. And in the Czech Republic, they have a simpler and perhaps more fun Christmassy tradition about telling the future with some apples, as Olga Loblova tells us. In the Czech Republic, we have a lot of traditional activities that often aim at predicting what will happen in the year ahead. For example, you take an apple on Christmas Eve and you cut it in half, but not along the vertical axis as you normally would, but horizontally. And then you take a look inside at the core. We do a similar thing in Ireland at Halloween. If you find the coin in the bread loaf, the barn brack, you'll have a prosperous year, provided you don't choke on it. So what do the apples mean? If you see a star, it means that the coming year will be full of health and happiness. If you see a worm or the apple is rotten inside, there'll be illness and disease. And if you see a cross, then that means that someone will die. Oh dear, let's hope no crosses then. Scientifically, though, there's not a lot to the idea of divination, of telling the future. We can predict some things, like if you drop Olga's apple, it will fall. And it could hit some unsuspecting physicist on the head, for example. But in general, these things fall flat. You just have to watch a weather forecast to see how unreliable the future can be. There was once an idea called Laplace's demon, that if you had a magical demon who knew where everything was and where everything was going, it could run the clock forward and predict everything. But then quantum mechanics, which is all based on probability, got in the way and put the X through that idea. So even the nicest Christmas traditions can't predict the future. They are fun though, and maybe that's enough. But we can always take the future into our own hands and make this Christmas merry and make the next year better than this one. 
And thank you very much to Olga for helping us with our predictions of the future. And thanks also have to go to Misha, Marcus, Andreas, Linda, Carol, Lawrence, Stephen, Andrew, Jean-Louis, Simon, Becky, Robert, Geraldine, Levica, Ludwig, Phil, Eric, Aaron, Shelley and Keith because they have all donated to the Naked Scientists and this support makes a huge difference and we appreciate it enormously. If you enjoy the programme, please consider making a donation to support our efforts. And if you can become a regular donor, we'd really appreciate that too. If you want to donate, we've made it really easy and really secure. You just go to thenakedscientists.com slash donate. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. Now, it's been a big few months for the gaming world. There's been two new consoles that have come onto the market, the Xbox Series X and S as well, which is kind of the same thing, and the PlayStation 5. So the next generation is here. I'm one of the hosts for the Naked Scientist's gaming podcast, which we call the Naked Gaming Podcast. So I've come along to chat all things video games. Now, lots of people have been talking about the new hardware that's on offer in the next generation. You've got, you know, 14 teraflops of power, which is loads. There's the new graphics and ray tracing that everyone's going on about. But a lot more goes into a game than just what you might see on the screen. It's not just all about the pixels. So this week on The Naked Scientists, we're looking at all the ways that a video game can get into your head and sometimes in a way that you might not expect. First up, I've been taking a look at how important what you hear can be when enjoying a video game and how hard that can be to make as the game gets bigger and bigger. Games aren't just pushing buttons. The music in a game can be vital for setting the mood. You know you're walking into a boss fight when the music gets uncomfortably intense. The problem is though, at any given time the player could be doing anything. Walking in the right direction, enjoying the scenery, leaving their character motionless while they get a cup of tea... So how do you get the music right? I spoke to Paul Weir, video game music composer from Earcom and audio chief for the game No Man's Sky, about how you make music for a video game. I guess as a composer, you know, I'm trying to find those key moments and the overall tone. You know, the difference with film is, is all those moments in film are engineered for you, they're laid out for you. You can't really often do that in games. So you're looking for just those key moments where you can inject a certain certain feel, a certain type of emotion. Uh, and often they may be, may be very specific. It may be like in No Man's Sky, the first time you leave a planet after building your spaceship. So it's just allowing the game to breathe and injecting those moments with a certain key emotion. No Man's Sky is a procedurally generated game. And that means as you rocket around space in your ship, the game builds the galaxy as you go using some random number generators and some very sophisticated algorithms. But that means no two players will see the same planets or have exactly the same experience. So how do you match music for a game that everyone experiences differently? And you don't play easy listening jazz during a big fight. Well, you use something called generative music. Generative music, I mean it to be that you use rules, uh, so probabilistic rules, that are imposed on small granular elements of music. So it may be a simple phrase. 
And maybe a bar loop. Or like a bass phrase. You're deconstructing the music into its components and then reconstructing it live based on certain rules that you've created. So it may be play a melody at every X number of seconds from a pool of, say, 200 melodies. So it really requires you as a composer to work in a different way, to work in a much more kind of modular, non-linear way. It's like a recipe. You're creating all, all the components, putting in all the ingredients, but instead of baking it before the game, you're letting the game create it for you. And then often drawing information from the game in order to control what plays, how it plays, what the combinations are, when the changes happen. And that can be very powerful because you're reacting to what the player is doing or what the game environment uh, is doing. So it feels much more reactive to the player. What gives it an impact, though? How do you create emotion ahead of time with just the pieces of music? It's hard to create those engineered emotional moments. So what you need to do is create the opportunity for those moments to happen without necessarily hardwiring them. In No Man's Sky, you may happen to be on a planet that generates beautiful sunsets, and you may happen to be there at the right time on a mountain to see that sunset. And to you, that feels very personal. It's somehow it connects with you because you're the only person to have ever seen that sunset on that planet. And the music is the same. Maybe 80% of the time, it just exists and it's supporting the game. It's fine. It's not doing anything particularly spectacular. But there are those like few moments where everything comes together and it's random. But we've allowed those random opportunities to happen. And when they do happen, they're very powerful. And if everyone plays for long enough, they'll run into one of those moments. So that's the beauty of, of a procedural game. Everyone does have those moments and has those stories to tell. And their stories are very individual. And that's, I think that's one of the really powerful things about procedural games. You know, everyone's experience is slightly different. Everyone tends to be very proud of those moments that they find. They'll game capture them. Whereas a game which is much more linear, you know, everyone's experience is essentially the same. It doesn't mean it's any, any less fun, but it's a different kind of personal experience. Paul Weir there, thank you very much. How interesting is that? I've been playing No Man's Sky very recently, so now I feel very much more informed about the game. And when we play video games, of course, what we see really matters. And it's not always in the way that we might expect. For example, have you ever seen a character's face in a game and felt just a little bit uneasy? Something might be wrong in a way that you just can't quite put your finger on. And that might work against the game. It might seem to be not very realistic. But sometimes in special cases, it can actually work for the game. Angela Tinwell's from the University of Bolton and has been looking at one facet of this called the Uncanny Valley. And Angela joins us now. Uh, very glad to have you on the programme. Angela, could you just start by telling us what is the Uncanny Valley? Well, the idea of the uncanny was first introduced by Ernst Jensch in the early 20th century. And he described the uncanny as an eerie sensation when you can't distinguish between what's alive or dead, what may be real or unreal. Mm. For example, of a tall waxwork doll, a crafted child's toy or automator. And building on this, Freud actually described the uncanny as an eerie sensation or what might be unfamiliar when we see an object. And it actually reminds us of 
our own death or what might be repressed in ourselves or in others. Now, Mori, a, a Japanese roboticist in the late 1970s, he took this idea forward because he observed with regards to robot design, engineers were including mechanical robots in the workplace, but people were developing more and more lifelike androids with synthetic skin, hair and flesh over the mechanical parts. But rather than having an increased affinity or likability towards these new android designs, people actually suddenly took an instant dislike or repulsion <laughs> towards them and he actually coined this theory the uncanny valley because we actually have a, a, a linear ascent with regards increased human likeness and perceived familiar, familiarity or likability. For example, with a robot toy that emotes like a human, that may have eyes and a smile and, and, and torso and limbs. But as soon as we approach Android designs, pushing the boundaries of true, of near human likeness, we take this sudden aversion towards them. And more we place things such as corpses, zombies, prosthetic hands in this, the nadir of this uncanny valley with a human safely on the other side. It's so interesting, isn't it? And you've already explained my fear of dolls and wooden toys and things like that. But I want to ask you, so you mentioned video games and zombies is something that's so hugely included in video games nowadays. And, and I suppose a kind of scary horror games. What is it about the, the face specifically that people start to feel uneasy about? Because it can, I suppose is it the eyes mostly that, that cause the, the, the emotion comes from the eyes? It actually comes down to the best way to describe it is Frankenstein's monster, where we perceive a lack of movement in the brows, the forehead and distinctly around the eyes and the upper facial region. And that's important because we really do read a lot of nonverbal communication from another person's face because the mouth uh. might be involved in speech and we rely on the upper face to give us an idea of what someone's feeling, thinking and how they may respond to occurrences that are happening around them. And without this nonverbal feedback in the upper face, we might perceive that the lights are on, but no one's actually home in yeah. that character. So <laughs> we can't perceive or predict what they're going to be doing and when, and that makes us really uncomfortable. Well, I want, to, I want to come on to how that might actually be useful for certain types of video games. But just before that, I've been playing um, one of the biggest releases today, Cyberpunk 2077, one of the biggest releases of the year, The, the Last of Us Part 2 as well. They are games which have very good uh, facial capture and motion capture. Is that, is that one way that these huge companies are actually trying to, to tackle this problem? Absolutely. We've got more and more sophisticated high density facial motion capture techniques that are being introduced to the game's animation, particularly with pre-rendered video footage that's played in games and even in real-time footage, the facial expression and emotive qualities of characters is improving. And you mentioned Cyberpunk 2077. Mm. I, I, that has received a lot of criticism in the last few days. Yes. I would say that there are a few small triumphs in the actual game in that, for example, Claire, a character who plays a bartender, the upper facial expression actually matches the emotive tones of her speech. And you can see that there's a lot of theory and conceptual thinking going on by the way the, the, her brow creases and you have oh. these emblems 
in her brows moving up and down that matches the tonation of her speech. The lip synchronization is very good for that character and she really draws you in and is very engaging. So I would say that, that the Claire the bartender is particularly successful with regards to facial expression in that game. The way it, um, that these motion captures and faces and, and the fact that sometimes they can look a bit unusual is actually something that can feed in very well to horror games. Uh, one that my wife has been enjoying loads recently is something called Little Nightmares, where you're a little uh, kid running around, essentially, and there's these evil creatures. And as you look at their faces, they, they sort of don't move, and they look at, almost like jagged, and the mouth will move, but the eyes will stay stationary. I imagine that actually, in this instance, game designers will be tapping into this uncanny valley and, and using it to their advantage. Absolutely. If a face is inanimate or it has aberrant facial expression, we may be reminded of death, which of course gives us quite uncomfortable feelings. If a game designer wanted to exaggerate the uncanny in a zombie type character, then based on the empirical experiments that I've done, I would definitely say reduce movement in the upper face, including the eyes, mm. the eyebrows and the forehead, so that the character may have a Botox-like effect. A grey or dull colour skin tone also would increase how antipathetic the character may seem. And also with regards to lip movement and speech, a, a distinct lack of um, synchrony between lip movement and speech does exaggerate the, can the uncanny, particularly if the speech is played before we see lip movement. Angela Tinwell, thanks for joining us. There's a lot more that a game can do to get into your head than just playing with your senses. We've heard about looking at games and what's on the screen and also the music behind it as well. But the right game can change your whole world view, as Adam's been finding out. Games are often challenging, but not in the way you might think. Sure, they can be hard, as anyone who's almost broken a controller in frustration can attest to, but certain games can get into your head and challenge the way that you think. Matthew Whitby from the University of York has been studying which moments in which games can do that. The type of work that I do is very much focused on to studying how games can challenge the way people think or feel. And the way I've kind of gone about it is by asking people. I've done uh, my first study, which I managed to get published out there, was asking people to report moments in games. And we ended up with something like 132 different moments from 100 different participants all across the genre of games saying that, yeah, I've had a moment in a video game that has challenged me either emotionally, philosophical considerations, or even, you know, how they hold themselves on a day-to-day -day balance. And so my research has kind of been developing from that moment of saying, there's a lot going on with games. Games are a powerful medium, but what can we do to try and as best as we can, capture the lived experience. So as someone encounters one of these moments where, you know, their, their perspective is being challenged, what's actually going on there? And, and that's kind of what my most recent up-to-date research has been trying to capture. That is a lot of different moments from a lot of different people. So what causes that kind of thing? There tends to need to be some level of uh, at least emotional connection in, in some way one participant kind of expressed how one mini game made them reflect on their relationship 
unfortunately, you can't design a game with the assumption that everyone is in a relationship or, or, or vice versa. But being aware of the possible life experiences people may, come, may be having as they enter. Alternatively, raising topics that players just would never have considered. Papers, Please is, is, a, is a really interesting example. Papers, Please has you take on the role of a border guard in a dystopian regime. You check people's papers against an increasingly long and arbitrary list of rules. But then desperate people start coming to you, begging for you to do the right thing and letting them in. But if you do, you'll be putting your family, who rely on your salary, in danger. It's monotonous, tense, and incredibly compelling. It is rare that anyone on a day-to-day basis had to balance, should I break the rules of my work? in order to essentially make someone's life better? Or am I willing to do do something morally questionable to save my family? It's these weird things that on a day-to-day basis, most people would probably never experience, and you'd hope not anyway. And by leaning into them and sort of including mechanics, because that, that's the important part, giving the player agency to willingly put themselves in the shoes of whatever sort of game situation you're presenting. Yes, it seems to be one of the most important things. It's not just massive moral thoughts that can be brought about. The changes can be simpler, more introspective, but just as important. This person was going through the motions, playing through this repetitive minigame, which had them cleaning around the house. And they realised that this loop within the game of cleaning the house, speaking with someone, cleaning the house, is in its own way weirdly representative of life, that the cleaning is never done. And those rare moments in between, you know, all the, all the chores where you call and connect with your partner or, or family or loved ones, you can relish those moments. And again, it was, it was weird that this was something that this person had been doing passively. And it's not until this game asked the question that they hadn't really considered that it kind of recontextualized a good chunk of their day-to-day life. At the end of the day, why does all this matter? There is so many questions about video games and the potential harm that they can do. But I think... As gamers and you know, people who play on living, I'm sure they can attest a thousand times over all the good that gaming can do. And games offer a experience that other mediums can't necessarily compare with. Matthew Whitby there, thank you for joining us. And Adam, I wanted to ask you, have any games particularly been challenging you recently? So the one that got me was the 2018 Spider-Man game. I played that when it came out, ah. loved it and then just kind of put it away and forgot about it. But I played it again this year, and mild spoilers ahead, I had forgotten that a large (laughs) chunk of it revolved around a pandemic, and suddenly the whole thing is very different. What about you? (laughs) Uh, I've been playing um, a bit of a, a, sort of like a retro game, Crash Bandicoot 4. It's about time. It's like their latest release, but it's got all the classic gameplay. But I noticed similarly that suddenly it took on a new meaning because you have to go around collecting masks, and I thought, oh, I bet they didn't originally plan that, you know, before this whole coronavirus thing came about. So it's certainly been an interesting one. But actually, let's go on to that, because it's been a really tough year for a lot of us. COVID-19 has kept us isolated in ways that we probably didn't plan for back in January of this year. But for some people, especially children, video games might have given them a bit of a lifeline. So with us to talk a bit more about this is Drew Katanak from the University of Westminster. Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Video games, I mean, I've personally found them helpful during lockdown. I've probably been gaming more than ever. But tell us about kids particularly. How how can video games actually help? Video games on a basic level, they act as a distraction. Spending time engaged in a game can 
act as an escape from a world around you, especially if there's been a lot of change and uncertainty, as there has been this year. For younger children, a game is a way of improving hand-eye coordination, fine motor skills and spatial awareness, whereas older children and young adults can use social games as a way of reaching out and communicating with their friends or even building alternative social networks away from the playground. And games like this offer a sense of agency and offer a sense of control. You can control who comes into your world. You can control what you do in your world. I mean, it takes that sort of playground environment and it brings it into the virtual environment. Bringing it into the virtual environment and, you know, a game like Minecraft, for example, which I think is one of the most popular games amongst uh, kids, and Fortnite as well, they're both very different. In in Minecraft, you're building, but in Fortnite, you're sort of going head-to-head in teams and, you know, shooting the other people. So d- does the kind of game make a difference here? Well, uh, yes, it is. And I think from a point of view of a parent, I mean, it depends on what you are comfortable with. If you went for uh, something for, like Minecraft, I mean, Minecraft has a lot of benefits. There's a lot of learning. There's a lot of skills that have been gained, uh, both socially and also cognitively as you are solving problems. And this is a way of helping children and young adults sort of explore the world around them through play. Something like Fortnite is, it is it's a shooter game. It's a last man standing game. Yeah. There is some question about where it's suitable. It would be more suitable for maybe younger adults and older teens. But then that again is a way where you can work, you can join your friends, you can compete together, you compete against each other. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a one-man standing game. So yeah, you're going for that achievement. And achievement's very important in games. Creating achievements, being able to use them as bragging rights, giving yourself a little bit of self-esteem for maybe getting further up the ladder than you had done previously, maybe being awarded a badge. And games are very good at that. They know these are important. One of the most kind of must-have gifts at the moment, which you almost can't get hold of, is the PlayStation Starter Bundle for the virtual reality headset. I know loads of people have been looking out for that at the moment. And virtual reality is one of those things where I sense people will start to move into that world, especially with lockdowns continuing. You can meet people in a virtual space. Is that something that you, you sense will help people to, to tackle lockdowns and things like that? Yes, of course. I mean, obviously, there is a certain amount of money that you need to outlay before you can start playing with virtual reality. But once you've got it, it's a way of opening up a new perspective. You lose that sort of connection with the computer that you are are focusing simply on one flat screen. You're focusing on a three-dimensional world. And, you know, that is far more compelling. It's far more involving. And I mean, the more you can share with your friends and with other people, meeting other people, the better, really. And they're designing entire cities now in virtual reality, which I, I think sounds good to me. I don't know if that's a worrying step towards the Matrix, though, but what do, what do you think? <laughs> it's funny that we had a Matrix so long ago and we, all, we, we yeah. think that is, it's all going to go horribly wrong. We are going to be developing virtual environments. We are looking at ways of having a virtual self. It's very possible in the years to come we will have a second personality, which is purely virtual. I mean, we already do to a certain degree. I know from myself, I've got uh, a pseudonym. I've got two, in fact, mm. for playing online. Dare I ask sure you what it is? Do. Or are you, you going to hold that, hold that? Mine's Cold Marine. I'll tell you that now from when I was a kid. So I can reveal that exclusively here but dare you tell us yours because i'm a lecturer i'm going to keep my (laughs) private pseudonym to myself it's important i mean these things are certainly important i mean you create 
an identity online and the benefit of that identity online is that it, it can be different to who you are. People who are playing in these virtual worlds, they will effectively start adopting the personality traits of the avatar that they are playing. You know, so for example, if your avatar is, you know, large and muscular and burly, you'll probably be more, yeah. dare I say, aggressive or forthright. I think that's a, a very good point well made and I think that's something that actually we could look into in the future because it is a hugely interesting area of research. Drew, we'll have to leave it there for now. Drew Kasanak from the University of Westminster and thanks to our other guests as well, Matthew Whitby, Angela Tinwell and Paul Weir. And we've just got time for question of the week and this week Eva Higginbotham has been cooking up an answer to this question from Mervyn. I'm wondering, is sourdough bread a healthy option? Now, sourdough bread happens to be my absolute favourite, especially toasted with salted butter. Delicious. I put the question to dietitian Rebecca McManaman. But first things first, what actually is sourdough? Sourdough bread is different from regular bread because it hasn't had yeast, dried or fresh yeast added to it. Instead, the thing that makes it rise is, if you like, natural or wild yeast that's living in the air. To make sourdough, instead of buying baker's yeast, you start off with what's called a sourdough starter, a mixture of fermented flour and water that's captured natural yeast from the air. The tasty tanginess of sourdough comes from naturally occurring lactobacilli bacteria, which produce lactic acid. But are there any health benefits alongside those taste benefits? So it could act as a prebiotic and it may have a slower release of energy from carbohydrate. So prebiotic means that it acts as a food or a fuel for the beneficial or the good bacteria that live in our gut. The bacteria in our gut help us digest our food, so it's only polite that we feed them things they like too. The prebiotic in sourdough is in the form of fibre that we can't digest, but the bacteria can and they will get nutrients out of it. Sourdough bread made with wholemeal flour has other benefits too. And wholemeal sourdough bread has a lower glycemic index than white or wholemeal bread, meaning that the blood glucose level rises less after eating sourdough at two hours than with other breads. So it might be part of a helpful tool to manage blood glucose in people with type 2 diabetes. It's thought that the fermentation process involved in making the rising agent for sourdough changes the structure of the starch in the bread, making us digest it more slowly and so preventing blood sugar spiking. All good news so far, but there are some potential drawbacks. If you make it at home, the dough could spoil when you're making it. And it's also easier to maybe eat a slice of artisan bread that's a bit bigger than one that's already pre-sliced. So, what's the verdict? So sourdough, yes, it could be a healthy option, but as always, it's got to be in the context of your portion and in a diet that's got a mixture of different plant-based sources of fibre. Hooray! Time for toast! Thanks, Rebecca. Next time, we'll be answering this question from Paul. Wondering if it's possible to get DNA out of crematorium ashes. Could you get any information about the person, such as weight or height, from their ashes? So what do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientists.com or join in the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientists.com slash forum. And if you have a question of your very own, send it in via that email or there's a web form on our site as well, nakedscientists.com slash question. 
And that is it for this week. Next week, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, so we are reflecting on some of the best stories from the Naked Scientists that we've reported on this year. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Adam Murphy and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.